Simple Suttas, a podcast on original Buddhism. So, uh, a few words of Dhamma while we're all on quarantine. Thought it would be fun to just talk about something that I enjoy thinking about, talking about, that's a little bit too uh, heavy a topic, and maybe just skip it, but uh, it's something I like talking about, which is anatta, myself, or I'm sorry, rather not self. This is uh, one of those teachings that, you, you know, you read the suttas, it's just there over and over and over again, in great detail, with the uh, long strings of pericopes that uh, describe this. And uh, my feeling is that some of it is, is painfully obvious. And then basically the other half of it is almost, almost impossibly difficult to grok outside of deep meditation. Anyway, here's a few, a few words on it. So, you know, uh, the, the idea here is not that this is a, uh, a catechism to recite, but rather a practice to be engaged with. So for, first, the stuff that's so obvious that it seems stupid. You know, uh, the idea is, the basic nugget is, not me, not mine, not myself. And that we're to look at anything in this way. So, you know, it's kind of obvious if there's a lamppost or a piano or something that it's not me, that it's not myself. On the other hand, if it's my piano, assuming, I don't know, maybe you've got a lamppost, but uh, I do have a piano. What does it mean to say it's not my piano? So when we're talking about this teaching, the idea here is this, it's really meant to be a deep teaching. Uh, the Buddha understood that when you're just talking casually, there are plenty of things that uh, we say casually that we don't sort of mean in a deep way. So, uh, you know, the Buddha encouraged us to be able to sort of talk normally. I'm Justin, I'm a person, I'm a man, whatever. Uh, but to not be confused by that. So the Buddha wouldn't have a problem with me saying, this is my piano. Uh, but we have to understand uh, what that means in a, in a little deeper way. Oh, <laughs> here's my, uh, my swamp, right? As everything is uh, melting, you can start to smell things coming to life. <laughs> So uh, what does it mean that it's not my piano in some deep way? Well, you know, if you think about it, uh, ownership of these things is really a, a social construct. Now, it can be a helpful, good social contract, uh, a construct. And the Buddha did say, you know, you should not uh, take anything that's not given. This is one of the very 
basic precepts for anyone wanting to live a Buddhist life or a wise life in general. Do not take what is not given. But, on the other hand, understand in a deep way that anything that is yours is not uh, yours in any kind of uh, essential way that society has agreed, okay, private property, this is yours, meaning no one else can take it. But you won't be able to, for example, take it with you after you die. The old saying, you can't take it with you, well, of course, it's absolutely true. More so, the, the thing itself, you know, breaks. Pianos need to be tuned or they go out of tune. Little by little, they, uh, they warp. And uh, even pretty good pianos don't last forever. I uh, saw Brahms piano at a, uh, in a museum not far away from here a, a while back. And uh, it's really miraculous, but uh, there aren't very many antique pianos older than that uh, because the, uh, uh, especially the uh, kind of modern grand pianos have such stress on them from the length of these big metal wires that little by little they bend and and uh, get out of shape and uh, warp. It's not like a violin where really old violins uh, can be uh, really wonderful. Old pianos typically aren't. It's even worse for harps. Okay, I'm a little off topic here. <laughs> Uh, but this, so this piano isn't mine, not only after my death, but even through this life, there's no guarantee that this piano is going to last and uh, be my piano. This is kind of a way to look at things outside of the body. All of this is fairly, you know, basic philosophy. When I say philosophy, I don't mean in a... Uh, academic sense, but just in a how one should think about their possessions. Uh, don't be too attached to your possessions. It, it, it's a real reasonable practice. Most things we uh, care about, but not too much. But there are certain things we can be really deeply tied to as being mine. And uh, it can be, for some people, for some things, a powerful thing to remember. Well, it's not yours in any deep sense. Through the last few weeks, a lot of people have lost a lot of material possessions. The value of stocks, perhaps their jobs, perhaps uh, soon it'll be mortgages and houses and cars. Can't really say. But uh, to the extent you can remember, even now, that these things were never yours in any deep way to begin with, that uh, makes it easier when loss inevitably comes. It strikes a little closer to home when we start talking about the body. You might uh, be subconsciously confused that the piano is yours, but you would never really be subconsciously confused that the piano was yourself, was me. But of course that is the case with the body. Basically uh, everyone except uh, an enlightened person is <clears throat> on some level uh, has that 
subconscious belief that the body is itself. There's two parts to this. There is, I am my body, and my body is my true self. And they were divided into two separate understandings. Uh, this is useful. If I say, my body is me, okay, well, what that means, partly, is that uh, there is no me outside of the body. Or you could say that the me is made up of body. These are two subtly different things. So one thing you could believe would be that uh, you could believe that all there is to a self is this body. That uh, when the body dies, there is no ongoing rebirth. Another thing that you could believe was that the body, in a sense, is the soul. This is kind of a, these ancient beliefs in uh, the, the soul being a physical property of the body that leaves and goes on to another, another body. I think uh, this is not... The, you know, that version of it is not something that people are very confused about today or uh, tap into deeply. But the idea that I am my body, that my body is me on a physical sense is something that people are deeply attached to now. If anything, uh, it's perhaps the, the dominant view in the West in uh, 2020. There is a wonderful philosopher, uh, philosopher uh, Derek Parfit, who uh, engaged with this idea quite a lot. Apparently, he wasn't influenced by Buddhism, but was uh, later delighted to find out that a lot of his ideas uh, had resonance with, with Buddhist ideas. There's a number of different ways you can kind of uh, think about this that could loosen your innate feeling of uh, your body as being yourself. So here's one. Uh, what part of your body is yourself? Is it your hand? If you lost your hand, would you have lost yourself? Is it your foot? Your arm? What if you had a heart replacement surgery? This is no small thing. Uh, uh, people uh, really do or really did believe that uh, changing a part of your body could change your innate self in some way. Now, the primary thing that people think of as being their self when it comes to the body is your brain. I was watching an old movie the other day, uh, just part of it. It was... Uh, uh, you could probably remember the name of it. I, I, I can't remember it, where they removed this woman's head and uh, put it in a, a jar. And uh, she continues to live without her body. That's a ridiculous old horror movie. But uh, I think that's essentially what people think now, uh, at least subconsciously, that our self is our brain and it rides around in our body like some little uh, astronaut riding around in this meat spaceship. 
fair enough, but I think what they really mean by that isn't that our self is our brain, but rather our self is our mind. If you really dig into it, there's of course no body part that could be replaced where you wouldn't say that you're still, that I'm still me. Replace your hand, replace your lung, replace your hair. <laughs> I'm still me. Well, what about the mind? This is very much how the Buddha looks at it, by the way. He kind of uh, creeps up on the problem step by step. Okay, well, if I'm not my body, am I my mind? Well, one thing you might ask is, am I my physical brain? Is that what I'm meaning by me? So what the, the Buddha encourages us to do is to, in the same way that you kind of might look at your body a little bit differently if you broke it down into parts, you might uh, think about your mind as having different parts. There is the aspect of mind that recognizes. There's the aspect of mind that wants. There is the aspect of mind that understands or recognizes or uh, cognizes the outside world. What of those things is the self, is me? Well, let's look at them. What about the part of the mind that recognizes? So there is this aspect of mind that has to do with memory or recognition. So uh, you see a person, do you remember their name? Well, it's really quite mysterious in a certain way, right? You, you, you look at their face and very often, you know, you know the name. It's right there. But when it's not, it's not. Oh my God, and I am just terrible with names. And when it's not there, you just sort of look at this person and uh, kind of this helpless feeling comes across like either that name is going to come up from where, somewhere, or it's not, and there's not much I can do about it. Is that me? Is that aspect of mine me? Well, here's one way you might think about it. What if you could install a computer chip in the back of your head, you plug it in there, and it'll help you remember names, right? And, you know, everyone you see, you can save it onto that little chip in your brain, and now name recognition instant. Would you say that that recognition remains you? Is that chip you? Sounds like an episode of Black Mirror or something like that. The answer has to be not really, right? Like if it's a computer chip doing it, even if it's installed into the back of my head, does that really mean that it's me? No, not really, right? Well, just because it's a silicon chip that's doing it rather than some part of the brain that's doing it, 
surely that can't mean that that is me. It's a little bit, a little bit of a delicate point here, right? Another way of, of putting it might be, what if some evil doctor scooped out the part of your brain that allowed you to recognize names? Or would you still be you then? Well, you'd certainly be diminished, but uh, perhaps not more diminished than the person that lost their hand or lost their hair. <laughs> Uh, I would say no. But uh, once you start thinking that way, once you recognize, huh, even though I find great importance in this ability to recognize, is it true that that's me? Quite a lot of ancient... Uh, philosophies, ancient dhammas, ancient religions came down to the idea of what they finally identified is, okay, when we really get to the nub of it, this is me. This is my true self. So if it's not, not that ability to recognize, perhaps it's that ability to desire. Right? Well, I just instinctually love X. Something stupid like chocolate cake. Or something more deep and closely held like my child. Am I me if I don't instinctively love my child, my wife, my homeland, my religion, my friends? Perhaps, perhaps. But would you say that that's me? I mean, for one thing, those things change, right? That, uh, that aspect of loving my child wasn't there until they were born. You can love someone that uh, treats you terribly and you fi find you've fallen out of love. Are you no longer you? All of those things change. This is what the Buddha meant when he said, if something changes, how can it really be the true self? So what could there be that you could eliminate where there would no longer be a self? Well, the thing that's normally come to is consciousness itself. The ducks are coming back. That's nice. So is that the case? Is that right? When we finally come down to it, am I consciousness? What the Buddha said was, no, even that is not the true self. Here, there's no real easy way to get at it, right? You can sort of uh, use your mind and your imagination to feel what it feels like to 
not have a hand or not have a hair. <laughs> but uh, what can it mean to be without awareness, without consciousness? Uh, well, here you have to experience that in meditation, state of neither perception nor non-perception. Buddha said, uh, you can't experience it directly. You can experience what it's like to not have sensations. You can experience what it's like to not have thoughts. You can experience ultimately what it's like to not have perception. And you can even experience what it's like to not have no perception. <laughs> but uh, at that level of subtlety, it really can only happen in deep meditation. I hope you're finding some time to sit these days, these deeply strange days, and putting a little effort into your practice. If you find these videos the least bit useful, well, let me know and I'll do more. Thank you.